Welcome back to the Beijing Sessions. I am Haig Balian. It's been a while, and it's good to be back. This week, I speak with Chris Stoppel Walker. His new book is TikTok Boon. Um, I'm using a new service, uh, new to me anyway, called Riverside FM, which lets you do remote interviews、uh, on video. So, if you want to, you can watch this interview on YouTube.、Uh, so, I-, I won't be doing this every week,、uh, but let's see how this one goes.、Um, okay, here's my interview with Chris Stokel Walker. TikTok is the fastest growing app on the planet. And unusually for a breakout social media app, it's owned by a Chinese company. That's a combination that makes a lot of people in the West uncomfortable, and puts the makers of the app, Beijing-based ByteDance, in a precarious position as they navigate political and economic pressures from seemingly every direction. Chris Stokel Walker is a writer based in Newcastle. He's written for Wired, The New York Times, BBC News, and other fine publications. And now he has a new book called TikTok Boom: China's Dynamite App and the Superpower Race for Social Media. The book is available in the UK, and it'll be published everywhere else on September 30. I'm going to guess, though, not in China.、Um, Chris Stokel Walker, welcome to the Beijing Sessions. Thanks for having me, and I don't know about whether or not it would publish in China. I guess, hopefully, it doesn't make too uncomfortable reading for for people in Beijing. Well, it's just hard to say where the lines are right now, so that's that's why that's why I <laughs> I, I put that sort of、uh, question mark there.、Um, Chris, before I get to my first question,、um, and I know I've been talking a lot already, but I, you know, I just found myself in a really unusual situation over the last week or so.、Uh, you already know this, but in the interests of full disclosure,、um, between setting up this interview and well, right now,、um, I applied for a job at ByteDance,、uh, which is the company that owns TikTok. Their headquarters are here in Beijing. I've had a couple of interviews with them. I don't have the job yet. I may not get the job, and I may not, in the end, accept the job. But I have to disclose. That conflict. In any case,、um, with that out of the way, let's talk about the book, which is which is comprehensive、uh, and very very current. You have some fact checks there from June 2021, which is like a month ago.、Um, so we can't get into everything here. There's so much to talk about, from the technology behind the app to its virality to attracting creators to the political issues. So I'll just start with. When we say that TikTok is the world's fastest-growing app, what does that mean? It, it means exactly that. It means it is outstripping every other app that has gone before it. Hey, I mean, you know, one of the things that is interesting, you highlighted the fact that、um, the book, because we kept holding it back and holding it back and holding back the time until we sent it to the printers, is relatively recent. But even between Finishing it up and sending it to the printers and release date, which was only about two weeks, we had data from Sensor Tower, which showed that TikTok is the first non-Facebook app to cross three billion downloads. So I, I missed something there, but it's an indication, I suppose, of the scale of TikTok's rise. Any way that you look at it,、um, whether it is user acquisition numbers, you know. The fact that TikTok is twice the size of Twitter in you know a fraction of the time, maybe a fifth of the time, or even if you look at things like revenue, you know, ByteDance's revenue is you know 
outstripping Facebook's based on the same kind of progression since they they first made sort of like three billion dollars or something like that. And you you see just everywhere that TikTok is is kind of piling on the users. I, I did a, a podcast interview um, elsewhere that kind of charted that that rise where it was sort of fifty eight million or so only just a couple of years ago and, and now it's 732 million outside of China and then obviously Douyin you know which you can kind of bunch them together if you want or not but that also has a huge number of users as well so I'm in China uh, but I'm on the American App Store uh, the Apple App Store that means I can't download Douyin which is the Chinese sibling to TikTok um, and I can't access or I can't actually sign on for a new uh, account on TikTok, which is behind China's firewall. So what am I missing out on? In terms of uh, the the sort of Western TikTok or in terms of Douyin, because they are very closely intertwined. That's right. Um, well, what am I missing out on TikTok? What am I missing out on the experience? So, you, I mean, not a, not a lot, to be honest, if you have Douyin already, because one of the interesting things, there is an amazing researcher called Debon DK Valvadinos, um, who is based in Queensland in Australia. Um, and he, with a lot of other colleagues, some of whom are based in and around China, have looked at the differences between TikTok and Douyin. And you know, realistically, um, they they have this concept of parallel platformization, is what they call it, which is essentially just that TikTok is Douyin on a you know, several month delay. So one of the things that you would have missed out on until recently, um, if you weren't able to access the Western TikTok through the American app store, is that TikTok recently rolled out three-minute videos on the app, um, you know, just in the last month or so to all users, plus a little nifty fast-forward function. But of course, if you uh, have access to Douyin, then you will know that that is kind of already the norm you know there the longest video is something like 15 minutes i think so you see these similar things you know the the only difference really is that you know douyin has much more live streaming capabilities at present although i think probably tiktok is gonna follow in that and likewise douyin has its um it's kind of positive energy uh tab which is one of those interesting sops i think to the the geopolitical circumstances and the political circumstances in which ByteDance operates in China. You know, when I was reading about, you know, when you were talking about, when you were writing about the differences uh, in, in both the apps and, and the fact that in China there is so much more live streaming, you know, I was walking through um, Guilin uh, a few weeks ago. And Guilin is, you know, really not a very large city in China. And not once, but twice on the same walk, I saw these these girl this girl group, these dancers, these singers, performing seemingly just to a camera with you know one of those halo lights. I thought, what like what is going on? And it didn't actually make sense until I read your book. It's like, oh, they're they're probably just live streaming to whatever audience is out there. Yeah, I just no I, and this is the thing, you know, I I absolutely cannot profess to be a China tech expert. Um, you know, the books. Chinese sections rely an awful lot on you know, amazing research by others, including people like Rima um, of the Tech Buzz China podcast and, and things like that. But it, it, it's really fascinating um, as an outsider looking in to see just how advanced social media, e-commerce, live streaming, all of that ecosystem is in China. And also 
you know, some of the stuff that I was writing about two or three years ago that sort of originated in China as, hey, look, here's this weird new thing of, you know, almost um, social media and the idea of being a digital celebrity and a digital content creator on steroids. It is now becoming, you know, you see the first inklings of that, I suppose, as the norm in the West. And there are some really amazing academics doing work on this. Um, there's, there's a guy called David Craig um, at um, USC Annenberg, who, who has a lot of colleagues as well, uh, Jan Lin in, in Groningen, who are studying essentially, you know, the, the rise of, uh, I guess, influencers or creators or, or KOLs or, or whatever you want to call them um, in China and, and how that's kind of having ramifications for the Western world as well and how we think of as digital content. Well, you, you spend a lot of time in the book um, writing about the algorithm that ByteDance developed to pick out the videos that would keep users on the app for as long as possible. Um, you write that ByteDance's algorithm is the moneymaker for the entire company. Um, but it's also the biggest mystery behind the company. And it's a mystery that um, journalists have been trying to solve. Like the Wall Street Journal, for example, they, they, just, they just published, I think this past week, uh, a video that, that purported to get to the bottom of that question. But you know, the fact is, while we have some clues um, and we have an idea of how the algorithm works, we don't know exactly how, how it works. So my question is, why should we care? Why not just... Why not just enjoy the videos that appear on our phones uh, that seem to be specifically or especially made for us? Yeah, well, this is this is the I guess million dollar question, or maybe a little bit more, Hague, because you know, by dance is white labeling now its algorithms through Volcano Engine in China and By It Plus in the West. Um, there are two reasons I think maybe why we should care. One of them is on the creator side, and one of them is on the consumer side, the user side. So. If we take the creator side first, I've been covering digital culture, internet culture, whatever you want to call this thing, which is content creators producing stuff and then sharing it to an audience through the mediation of platforms um, like YouTube and Instagram and, and so on uh, for maybe sort of five or six years now um, in earnest. And there is a hard and fast rule that whenever you get more than two content creators in the same room at the same time, the conversation, regardless of what platform they're on, regardless of what size they are, regardless of how successful they are, the conversation will always turn to how do you please the algorithm? How does the algorithm work? Because this is the thing that puts their content in front of eyeballs, right? So that is why they care so much about it. In terms of why users should care so much about it, it's because all of our lives are mediated through these platforms and we are becoming increasingly concerned about how they are coded and what impact that has. Um, you know, I, I've covered a lot of stories around you know implicit racism that is built through social media and, and you know there are people like Safir Mujer Noble um, who, who wrote a book called Algorithms of Oppression about how the fact that mostly white dudes in Silicon Valley coding much of the tech that we use on a day-to-day -day basis has resulted in ethnic minorities and women and um, sexual minorities 
being essentially repressed or wiped out of culture. Then you, know, you have things like the Cambridge Analytica scandal and suddenly we're all aware that there are algorithms controlling our lives and serving up data and serving us up to advertisers as well. And I think we become much more concerned and have become much more aware of the power of algorithms and therefore we want an insight into it whether or not tiktok is uh less transparent than others i think is actually up for question I, you know i'm a a tech skeptic and b um i like to think that uh my reporting annoys ByteDance and TikTok to a certain extent. I, I know personally that TikTok's PR often wonder how I get some of the information I do get. Um, I, I find things that they don't even know about on occasion. Um, but I will say that TikTok has been more open than many platforms in explaining what it was about. So you mentioned the Wall Street Journal uh, video, which tried to explain... The algorithm indeed did an okay job at explaining the basics, but there was some maybe fundamental issues with how that. I thought so too, but, yeah. but also they yeah, presented sorry, it. As, yeah, yeah, and, and we can get into that. No, we can definitely get into that because I think it's really interesting. Um, but they presented it as this is TikTok's really secret thing, and you know, TikTok has been a little bit open. I'm, you know, I'm not saying that they're, they're sharing their source code and letting everybody know how it works. But to their credit, they are at a very high level, and certainly not in the kind of detail that I would like, but they are still explaining it a little bit more than maybe some other platforms. I mean, I covered YouTube for years, I wrote a book on YouTube, and you know, trying to get them to explain their algorithm is like pulling hmm. blood out of a stone. So, so, so how does it work as, much, as far as we know? Um, well, it's a good question. I mean, if you if you believe the Wall Street Journal story, which sent a load of bots, I think largely just only to watch videos, then it relies solely on watch time. Um, so the longer that you watch a video, the more that you repeat watching that video, the more that content gets served to other people. Um, my issue with that is that the way that that experiment seemed designed, and I haven't seen the the full details of it because it was just a 13 minute video but the way that it seemed to be designed is not really the way that i use tiktok and i don't think it's the way that humans use tiktok which is that we often comment we often like and we often share so watch time seems to be the predominant reasons but there are you know lots of signals in there that other people may into integrate with the app and interact with it that also feed into that um but in terms of you know being a soothsayer for the tiktok algorithm one of the most instructive conversations that i had for the book was with a, a person called yasmin howe who leads the uk's editorial team for tiktok and i asked her i said you know i speak to creators every single day who ask me how the algorithm works i am writing a book that is aiming to try and decipher some of this stuff. So can you tell me how the algorithm works? And her answer was very, very simple. She said, I don't think even the Algo team know fully how the algorithm works. So that is kind of totemic example of big tech and not everybody knows the secret source. Nobody knows the secret recipe for Coca-Cola or those uh, 13 herbs and spices for the KFC recipe. So I don't think that people necessarily know in its totality how TikTok's algorithm works. Um, I thought I thought one of the most 
compelling parts of your book was was your description of how TikTok gained popularity uh, in the rest of the world outside of China, uh, particularly in the U.S. You know, it learned from the failure of Vine, which was Twitter's short video app that, that crashed and burned. And you explained that Vine alienated its creators. It didn't really appreciate them. Um, and TikTok, on the other hand, eventually earmarked over a billion dollars to pay its creators in the U.S. And I think it was $300 million in Europe, uh, which you point out was not really that much considering the huge number of people who are using the app. Um, but, but even then, like there was this discrepancy between TikTok's U.S. offices and ByteDance's Beijing managers on, on how to grow the app. And, and they had to navigate these cultural differences. Um, and that really came to a head with how Beijing wanted to handle the rapper Cardi B. Um, so what, what, what happened with Cardi B? And how does that experience explain the differences between, between China and Silicon Valley? Yeah, so this is one of the fascinating things that came out over the course of my reporting of the book. I spoke to lots of current, lots of former, both ByteDance and TikTok employees. Um, and there is this sort of fixation with centralized control, at <laughs> least initially, Sorry, when TikTok is setting up in a country. It's it's really interesting. Um, so the, the Cardi B example, and, and there are lots of others that I, I may give a little bit of insight into right after, but the Cardi B example was basically, um, and this is from, uh, without giving away the source exactly, someone who had first-hand knowledge of um, getting Cardi B onto the platform. Um, Cardi B was given a six-figure sum, uh, this source says, in order to join TikTok. But that was basically it. Um, there was very little oversight or control or requests for the type of content or the frequency of content that she should be posting. So one of the things that she posted on TikTok initially when she first joined the app was a video taken by someone else from another platform of someone dancing, I think it was on the New York subway. Um, just the sort of content that nobody is going to associate with Cardi B. Nobody is necessarily going to find particularly interesting. And yet they threw basically a high six-figure sum uh, at her in order to do that. So you know, that is an example, I think, of uh, ByteDance's willingness to splash the cash but maybe their their naivety initially at least in recognizing that some of the tips and tricks that they use to build their audience in China and elsewhere because they have been very very open in supporting creators directly you know paying people to join the app and also paying them a stipend to essentially act as real life beta testers for the app um that works in China, but just throwing money at a celebrity in the West without much request of what type of content they could post is is not necessarily conducive to success, and it wasn't in the case of Cardi B. Yeah, I mean, it was. It was <laughs> no, I, I had to laugh, but when I was reading, when you were talking about the centralized sort of way that 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 people, well, that people that the company sort of um, operates in, and it just this this is just what happens here so ByteDance had really impressive success with Douyin by managing to get it on a Saturday night TV show um, at one point uh, and that was booked by an executive in China 
um, whose job then was to go to satellite offices around the world and try and do the same thing. So to try and book, I don't know, America's Got Talent in the US or The X Factor in the UK. And it obviously did not work. But there was this idea that that worked in China and got us a lot of users. So therefore, it must be immediately replicable elsewhere. So that is the kind of top-down view of that. And then the bottom-up one is ByteDance's obsession with pig farmers. Um which you know pig farmers seem to be huge on a lot of different platforms that they run and so you know there, there was a an employee at top buzz which is was bite dancers us version of totiao um in their early days that was told to go out and find a pig farmer to make them successful on uh top buzz and hopefully eventually on tiktok and obviously that didn't work because why would americans care about a pig farmer and likewise in 2019, when TikTok was starting to really start to, to gain a hold in the UK, I was specifically pitched by TikTok's PR, not on a pig farmer, but on a farmer based in the UK, as, hey, look, this is an example of the diversity and range of the content that we have on the platform. And knowing now what I know about the obsession with pig farming, I think it's really instructive as to just like that blueprint getting dropped down everywhere and hoping it works. Well, what was your response? I didn't really care. I didn't. I didn't see the point of it. And also, but th- there was a story. BuzzFeed covered it, yeah. for instance, back in 2019. Um, you know, it is interesting. It's cute animals. But I was just like, what does this farmer do? Like, why? Why is he emblem? Why is he one of the faces of your platform? And they didn't really have an answer to that at the time. But in the U.S., I guess you you wrote about uh, how you know when when Schwarzenegger, when Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, posted something on the app, that was a sign that they had actually made it. Yeah, because why would a seventy-two-year-old want to pick up TikTok at that time? Even now, I mean, you know, the reality is that TikTok, you know, two-thirds of its users in the West are over the age of twenty-five, um, which is impressive and a, a fascinating stat certainly wasn't always the case um but you know and I, i've interviewed octogenarian tiktokers in the uk uh including for the book but there is still this idea that social media and particularly tiktok is a young app and so the fact that arnold schwarzenegger who you know first of all is is really really freaking old is a mainstream movie star, has cultural cachet, is a politician. You know, all of those things add up to be gold dust for TikTok, and that's why I think it was such a totemic moment. Like it, it was one of the things that several sources that I spoke to for the book said was the moment that they realised actually we're getting cut through here. This is starting to work really, really well. Um, you know, in the book you highlight some of the most successful creators on TikTok. People like. I actually never heard of, but my 14-year-old stepdaughter had and, you know, has some very strong opinions about. Um, a former soccer player named Noah Beck, for example. Uh, I I had thankfully never heard of him before, but, you know, now now I have. Thank you very much. Um, he, he quit school to do TikTok full-time, and he's really, really successful at this. Millions and millions of views, lots of sponsorship. He's, he's getting rich it seems from from doing this and 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 when i say doing this i mean you know basically he's he's like being cute on camera and 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 you've focused on other creators as well um 
that have achieved some level of virality. Um, magicians, Hollywood lookalikes, makeup people. Um, so not, not every creator is going to be Noah Beck, but, but what are some of the lessons that other creators can, can take away from, from that success? I think it's that it's a lesson that, to be honest, has existed before social media, which is that teenagers are some of the best consumers in the world and some of the most ardent fans. They have the most disposable income. They don't have kids or mortgages or things like that. So they are prime people to target to, and teenage girls in particular are always going to fall for a attractive young man. So I think, you know, we've seen this throughout not just social media but throughout history like why were the Beatles popular because they could turn packs of young teenage girls into sort of quivering shrieking messes when well I would I, come on I mean yes the Beatles could do that absolutely but but there was also like they were they were musical geniuses N Noah Beck is is not I I mean if he's a genius I I, I, I haven't seen it you know <laughs> He's a genius at branding himself, though. He, he's like, you know, we we discounted, you know, for years we discounted Paris Hilton or Kim Kardashian. We thought of them as airheaded, but actually they're really smart, canny entrepreneurs and they just know that their shtick is to be dumb and pretty. Um, no, I, I, I get what you mean. There is a, there is a flattening of quality content, um, which is an inevitable result of the fact that you have opened up the floodgates so that anybody can create content. I create content, bad content on TikTok, and yet I still do it. Um, you know, the ease of production has meant that the barrier to entry is lower, and sometimes if you lower the barrier to entry, you get some people who would previously be overlooked but are really talented, but a lot of the time you get people who don't have a lot of talent but still manage to make it big. There's something really interesting about the algorithm, though, which is is different to kind of YouTube. So I, I did a book on YouTube in 2019, um, which was kind of a legacy of a lot of my iterative reporting around this stuff. And I'm fascinated generally by the idea of digital creators and celebrities and what we call the parasocial relationship between them and their fans, their audience, which is you become emotionally invested in their success. You know, you see them as friends rather than necessarily as traditional celebrities so you know you think of them more as let's say um you know a close buddy rather than tom cruise or something like that and there are mainstream celebrities that have bridged that gap so you know jennifer lawrence's whole presentation is essentially she's the girl next door who you could go for a drink with and she is your friend um, and she's klutzy and she kind of plays with that rather than being this very glamorous Hollywood star. Um, but TikTok's algorithm is interesting because the whole, not just the algorithm, but the app itself is developed in such a way that you are not necessarily as closely connected with individual creators. You're not, I mean, you can follow people, but that's not the default view. And so I think there is a loosening of the tie the parasocial relationship between creators and their audience in that instance. I, I was talking to a friend recently and I, and I told him about this interview uh, and we started talking about the security issues that Western companies have with, with TikTok. Um, this friend works for a Western-based company and, and they told me that TikTok can't be on their company phone. It was an edict that came from above, like an email that said, you cannot have TikTok on your phone. 
Um, Facebook, which is a network I, I, I personally have huge problems with and, and haven't had my phone. It's, it, the app has not been on my phone for years. That's okay. Uh, Google, Gmail, these are allowed. Um, WeChat, that's okay uh, because you can't, you can't do anything in China without WeChat. Um, even though, by the way, uh, way more important stuff happens on WeChat than on TikTok. Um, but TikTok is, is forbidden. Um, and this company's, this friend's company is not alone. You know, you write in your book about the distrust that people in the West have of China, right? So we're at this point right now where many people in the West don't trust China. And that's had an impact on pe how people view ByteDance. Um, you write about how in the U.S. part of this is because of Trump and other hawkish anti-TikTok politicians, possibly goaded on by executives at Facebook and other U.S.-based social networks. Um, and in the book, you... You, you report that a third of Americans think that TikTok is a national security risk. So how, how well, can ByteDance allay these fears? How can they allay these fears? I don't think they can. This is, this is the really interesting thing. The, the well of public opinion has been poisoned so much. And I'd be fascinated to learn, you probably can't say, but I'd be fascinated to learn what company your friend works for because yeah, that was the big thing back in... August 2020 was, you know, there was this edict that came out from Amazon where there was a whole employee email that went out saying you have to delete TikTok from your phone if you have it on your work phone by tonight. And then Amazon very quickly, what we would call in the UK, reverse ferreted on that, which is that they just kind of disappeared that, uh, that whole edict out of existence. But it, it is interesting. Um, you highlighted kind of Facebook and Google here and, and you know, there's there's two separate issues that are worth pointing out and you know, you're in China and you're connected to the internet and I don't want you know the internet to suddenly disappear in a second. So I will say nothing more than there are severe legitimate concerns around large parts of how Chinese society operates and the oppressive nature of it. And those are very significant issues, should not be discounted. There are lots of people who rightly point out lots and lots of very serious things that are wrong there. And you may or may not be able to say anything about that, so I'll leave that. Um, because you are based in China, and I'm conscious of that. And I teach Chinese students, so I'm conscious of you know, the, the, difficult, you know, the fact that we are even presenting this conversation in this way is an indication that something may be amiss there. That is a separate issue, I think which is different to the one around TikTok, um, which is that um, there is a concern around data in tech generally that we have correctly identified is a concern. We've spotted this issue, which is that, you know, I'm a tech skeptic, tech reporter, many, many times. We give too much data to companies that do not handle our data in a correct way and we have sleptwalked into that and we have got a society that is uh, making people more extreme because of some of the data and the targeting that they use that is a issue that is emblematic of all of tech so we've identified that issue but we've misdiagnosed the cause of that We've said, particularly in TikTok's case, that this is Chinese tech that is an issue. 
when it's not. TikTok doesn't do anything different to any other platform that we have established in the West. Um, you know, I'm a journalist, and I'm, I'm I'm certainly not the best at my job in the world, but I'm you know, I like to think that I'm decent enough. You read out a list of publications that employ me regularly. Uh, at the very start of the podcast, and they do include some of the world's biggest publications. My my job is to try and find things out, and yeah, it would be the scoop of the century to be able to find the bat phone that connects Xi Jinping and uh, ByteDance headquarters, and the data pipeline that tunes it straight to the Communist Party, and you know, all of Western users' data. I've been trying for two years to find that because that's a hell of a story and because you hear all these concerns and you think without, you know, there's no smoke without fire. I haven't been able to find that. So either I'm not as good a journalist as I thought I was, which is absolutely potentially a valid reason for all of this, or it doesn't exist. And the issue is actually TikTok does exactly what everybody else does. There are these concerns, I guess, of oversight and what happens once data arrives in China, um, which are absolutely valid. But also, what good does you know a spy in Beijing get from looking at your daughter's bedroom uh, as she posts videos on TikTok that she couldn't already get from looking at the videos that she posts on YouTube or the photos that she posts on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram? You, you know, you sort of end the book with um, the question of, should we worry about TikTok? And, and your answer is, well, no, for those reasons. Yeah, I'm going to look think. really stupid yeah. in about a year, aren't I? No, I don't know if you are. I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> the, look, it, it's, it's the perfect hostage to fortune thing. Um, and yeah, there is this point is there will be people who buy the book. And I do hope that people buy the book, whether or not they are trying to get this answer or not but there are people who will be buying the book because they want to know the smoking gun and i'll, I'll be honest spoiler alert i don't find it i find things that are close you know there's a significant data scrape in there um which has been previously unreported that i think is a concern um but you know in terms of do i find a connection between you know, the chinese government and TikTok? No, I don't. And the reason why so many people in the US think that TikTok is a national security risk, which is a, a survey finding replicated in surveys that I did for the book in the UK and in India, um, is because we have seen this broader geopolitical issue. You know, <laughs> TikTok is apparently reportedly trying to come back into India. And they've managed to convince the politicians that, if you if you believe the reporting around it, that there is an opportunity for them to do so. And they've won the politicians back on side. The issue isn't with the politicians. Um, you know, I, I surveyed uh, Indians who said we don't want TikTok back. We believe it's a risk. Um, you know, we, we don't want it to come back. Likewise, you know, TikTok um, was casting around the UK to place its global headquarters in London. Uh, at one point last year. I know that there were papers tabled um, in government departments about it, um, which is again another unreported fact that's, that's in the book, previously unreported fact. It didn't end up there, 
in large part because of national security concerns, which are related to Huawei and to Hikvision and things like that. You know, we have this very sinophobic world, and you know, Donald Trump you know, spent several thousand dollars pushing out thousands of adverts on Facebook in the U.S. presidential election, which literally said TikTok is spying on you. Um, you know, those things have an effect. <laughs> Chris, before we before we um... Uh, sign off. I have one more question. Um, Didi Global is also a Chinese app, and, and Didi is a service I, I use a lot, almost every day. Um, Didi had its initial public offering um, on, on the New York Stock Exchange about three weeks ago. We, uh, my wife and I, bought a small amount of Didi stock on the second day of trading, and since then the price uh, of the stock has, has plummeted. It's worth about half of what it was at IPO, um, and the reason for that is as soon. Like not as soon as, as the reason for that is that soon after uh, Didi had its IPO, the government here in China announced a cybersecurity review because of the company's data practices, and then it banned Didi's app from the country's app stores. Um, okay, so Didi is a domestic app, but the issue is that they listed in the U.S. despite pushback from the CAC, the Cyberspace Administration of, uh, of China, and, and and there will be some severe repercussions. Um, so. I mean, what, does this suggest to you that, that the mistrust goes both ways? And, and what does that mean for ByteDance? Oh, 100%. I mean, it, it's really interesting because as the book was coming out and I was um, trying to hawk myself shamelessly to TV channels and radio stations and things like that, you know, I was specifically mentioning the DD issue because it, it is an example of this increased distrust between both, and it means that ByteDance is kind of stuck in the middle. Um, you know, it is. You know, Yimin Zhang always wanted to have a company that is as borderless as Google, and one of the things that I find really interesting is that in the West he is presented almost as if he is a puppet of China, and, and there are worries that you know he is some kind of deep state plot to to try and overthrow, I don't know, capitalism and replace it with a more Chinese model or, or something like that. And what's interesting is that you know all of the reporting that I've done and all of the conversations that I found is that he's a pragmatist. He He's actually a very global outlooking person. He goes on holiday an awful lot around the world. He spends most of his time traveling and he wants, you know, to me, he seems like someone who wants to emulate those Silicon Valley capitalists that he read about. Um, and there are going to be a lot of issues if he does that because he has managed to date, and you know we can talk about Nehuan Dan Duanzi and things like that. He's managed to date pretty well to navigate the choppy waters of you know, Chinese state control and oversight, and you, know, you mentioned the Cybersecurity Administration and things like that. Um, he, he survived that pretty well, but. Now he's got this really challenging problem, which is one that's manifested in, in Didi's situation, which is you know, ByteDance has planned repeatedly to IPO. Um, you know, they, they've kind of marched their employees up to the top of the hill a few times and said, right, this is happening. We're going to, you know, we'll start valuing your stock and your RSEs and things like that. And then they've marched them down most recently, almost, you know, categorically as a result of the Didi thing. Um, and so they're in this really invidious position where the West doesn't trust them, 
to fully embrace them in the US, the UK, India, wherever you want, Australia, all these places, the European Union is opening investigations all over the place. And yet, if they get too successful and they try and base their business elsewhere, then does the DD issue replicate itself here? And potentially, yes. And I, I don't really know what the answer to that is. You may have better insight on that than me. I don't. And I just, I just marvel at the problems that they have. They are the most successful app in the world, and yet they're in this really incredible position where... The, the, you know, everybody's coming at them. It seems like it's 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 quite incredible. And this this is the thing. Um, I am my my BS sensor is pretty well attuned to PR guff, as we would call it in the UK, which is just sort of spouting nonsense and trying to self promote yourself and things like that. Um, over the course of twenty twenty, TikTok kind of mounted this campaign in the US and in Australia in particular and they used this phrase in advertising in parliamentary and senatorial and congressional testimony uh, repeatedly which is that they felt like they were a political football they use that term a lot and it is PR speak absolutely it is woe is me but there is I think more than you would often find in one of those bits of PR speak, a, a real germ of truth there. They are damned if they do and damned if they don't, and they're damned from both sides. They are now too global to fit into that kind of Chinese model, and they are too Chinese to fit into that global model. There's a reason why ByteDance will scream and shout from the rooftops that they are based in a tax haven the cayman islands rather than say they are based in china if you say bytedance is a chinese company they come back and they say no we're based in the cayman islands the cayman islands is known for being one of the world's most notorious tax havens like it, it says something when it comes to the fact that a company is more willing to say that they are based in a tax haven than they are in China. I think that's kind of fascinating. It's always, it's puzzled me so much because you, you sometimes feel sorry for them in just how how much they have to kind of contort to try and serve all these different masters and to keep everybody happy. It would drive you insane, I think. Chris Thokal Walker is the author of TikTok Boom, China's Dynamite app, and the superpower race for social media. He joined me from Newcastle, England. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Calling her with an instant regret. That's it for this week. Uh, thank you for listening. I will be back next week with Shannon Bufton. He designs and sells bicycles here in Beijing. Uh, I'll talk to you then. <laughs>